Today, the scripture reading is uh, Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy's servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with, with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the, to the glory and praise of God. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. And I know while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. What a tremendous promise that is. Isn't that wonderful? And, and that's part of the reason, I don't know if you noticed, I started wearing these bracelets and this one's got an anchor on it. And it was because I was at a conference and I kept hearing about this, this sure, steadfast anchor we have in Christ. And so I, I decided to get this to remind me that we have an anchor for our soul that is anchored behind the veil. We can never drift away from that. He has secured us. And so thank you for leading us in that, Kyle. That's, that's just a wonderful promise for us to hold on to and, and to remember. So I want to invite our children to uh, Children's Church. Our teacher will meet you in the hallway. And um, as they're going, let's start in a word of prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you that you promised us in John that we are the sheep of your hand and no one can pluck you, pluck us out of your hand, that, that no one can take us, take us away from you. Thank you for the security that we have and knowing that you are the good shepherd, the shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. And Lord, that you've gone ahead of us to prepare a place for us. And we look forward to that day when we cross over and join you and we are with you forever, filled with joy. Lord, don't ever let that, that promise, that beatific vision, that beautiful vision of heaven escape us and, and what joy it holds for us. And Father, we want to pray for uh, the temporal concerns, the, the concerns that we have in this world, because you've told us to do that. You've put us here, you've left us in this world, and you told us to be salt and light. And part of that is praying for the needs of those around us. Lord, we think of the fires up north. Um, the Dixie Fire started in the same place as the fire that destroyed Paradise, and the Dixie Fire has destroyed Greenville, a small town up there in the mountains. And so, Lord, we pray for the victims of that fire. Eight people have died. We pray for their families, for uh, the, the loss that they're suffering. Father, for the victims of the fire that have lost everything, their house has gone up in smoke, and there's nothing left but rubble. Uh, Lord, I just pray for your mercy to be working there. Lord, as you have left Paradise EV free, untouched in paradise. 
in a um, in a, a, a foothold for the gospel in that in that community. We pray that you've done the same thing in in Greenville, and there will be gospel opportunities to help people recover. Um, Lord, we pray for the people who have been evacuated and survived the fire and the, the trauma that they face, the, the heartache, the loss, the, um, the difficulty that they have to go through. Uh, it's not just a matter of rebuilding. Uh, there's, there's significant memories and, and heart attachments in that community that have gone. And Lord, we pray for the fires even further north in Oregon. Uh, thank you that Dana West's mom was spared, that she was evacuated before the fire got to her. Thank you that you spared her house. And uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you might use her and her house as a, a gospel beacon in that neighborhood as people return and uh, decide whether to rebuild or not. And Lord, we pray for our government, um, not just California, but uh, all of these, these Western states, Lord, that they would have wisdom as far as tending to the forests uh, to help them not have as much fuel for, for burning. And uh, Father, for the homeowners in all these states where the fires are, that they would have the wisdom and care to clear zones around their houses. And Lord, in the midst of all of that, we know that the strong message from these fires is this is all temporary. It's all going to burn someday anyway. And so, Lord, we pray that you might use the disaster of these fires to begin to spark uh, revival in many communities, that people would remember that their time is fleeting and their possessions are easily replaced. But Lord, their soul goes on forever and they need a savior. So Lord, would you accomplish those things? Father, we want to pray for the Kremri family. So much going on with them right now. Lord, we lift them up to you again. Thank you for the hands that help them pack their pods and get their, their household uh, together. Lord, we pray for the family that moves into that house, the family that takes over the Kremri household. Lord, would you be uh, with them, Lord, uh, almost kind of like the, the lingering effects of having a Christian family in that house for so long. We pray that you would continue to work there and that that family might come to know you if they don't know you already. Um, Lord, have mercy on them. Father, we pray for Kyle and Anne Marie's wedding tomorrow. I pray, Lord, that that would be a, a joyful occasion for both families and a beginning of a fruitful life together for Kyle and Anne Marie, that they would together lock arms and walk with you, Lord. And uh, Father, we pray for the, the move that the Cremorites are facing uh, heading east uh, for Kayla as she heads north to college. Uh, Lord, would you go before them and pre prepare a way? I pray, Lord, that you would give Ramey and Jen and Kyle, Kayla and, and Kyle all sorts of more opportunities to tell stories about the miracles that you've performed for them. So Lord, be good to them, we pray. And Lord, we pray that you'd be with us now as we turn to your word. Holy Spirit, would you open it to our hearts and our minds? Sink it deep into us. Lord, make us new people. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to start the book of Philippians, if you hadn't noticed. <laughs> it's a big change. Before we dig into the book, let me just tell you the story of the church at Philippi. It's kind of a lengthy introduction, but it, it's important that we get Philippi kind of settled in our minds. So most of this is from Acts chapter 16. Um, it appears that Paul's plan was not to go to Philippi. He had been working, if you imagine the, the peninsula of Turkey and you carve Turkey up into three parts, get that? Did you catch what I did? Carve, carve. If you cut it up into three parts, Paul had been working in the eastern two thirds of Turkey and had a tremendous success there. He planted numerous churches and great miracles had happened and, and it had just been really, really wonderful. And so at a certain point, 
Paul said, well, I'm going to go into that last third. And a big chunk of that last third, that western third of Turkey is called Asia. <laughs> I remember as a young believer reading that and going, why didn't he go to China? But that wasn't what Asia was. Asia was that portion of, of Turkey. And as he turned to go, what Luke tells us in Acts is the spirit prevented him from going to Asia. And what does that mean? I wonder what that would have looked like. It could have been a prophet. There were prophets in those days. A prophet could have come and said, thus saith the Lord, don't go into Asia. It could have been that, that Paul had a vision. Um, we saw Peter have a vision. P Paul will have a vision later. Maybe he had a vision that said that. It could be that just the circumstances, he couldn't get transportation or couldn't make it that way or the road was closed or who knows what. And he just interpreted that as divine providence prevented him from going to Asia. So whatever it was, his plan was to go there. And instead where he winds up is on the very Eastern portion of Turkey in a town called Troas. It's a port city. And so while he's in, in Troas, he receives a vision. A man from Macedonia comes and stands before him and says, come to Macedonia and help us. And so I'm, I'm guessing here that the divine providence that prevented him from going to Asia and a vision saying, come to Macedonia, Paul must have at that point go, well, I guess this is where the Lord's leading me. And so he and his companions, it was at least Timothy and some other people with him probably, set sail for Macedonia. Now Macedonia is on the eastern coast of the main part of Greece. And so they sail, it's, it's, there's more involved, but they sail to a city called Neapolis. And Neapolis is a port city right there in Macedonia. And once they get to Neapolis, then they, they travel further. They don't stop there. It's not like the first place they landed, they, they minister. Instead, they went to a place called Philippi. And so they get into Philippi. Now, Philippi, Luke describes it in, in 1612. He describes it as a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Now, uh, some people theorize that Luke was uh, uh, Philippian himself, and so he's proud, a leading city. My city is a leading city. I, I'm not sure if that's necessarily true, but it was a Roman colony. So what is a Roman colony? What a Roman colony was, it was basically miniature Rome. You take Rome and just move it to a new location. So in Philippi, they had Roman law, they had Roman culture, they had Roman politics, they even had Roman architecture. So it was just a mini Rome out there. Um, now the city was founded in the fourth century BC and it was named after Philip II of Macedonia. And we have a connection to him, we, we remember him because he's the father of Alexander the Great. And in Daniel, didn't Alexander the Great show up a number of times? So yeah, there's a connection there. Uh, it was named after his father, Philip. And then uh, in the second century BC, the Romans came in and took over. And we saw that, that was explained what was gonna happen in the book of Daniel as well as the Romans would come in. And then in 42 BC, that's when it was made a Roman colony and became this very important city. So this was Paul's normal way of doing missions. This is how he, he approached missions is he would head into big cities. He didn't, he, in the book of Colossians, he says to all those who have never seen my face, he didn't witness in Colossae, it was too small of a town, but he did go to other larger cities. So that's why he goes to, um, to uh, Philippi. So now while he's there, what Paul tells us is he um, spent many days in the city, but what he didn't find was his normal means of evangelizing. Usually Paul would go into a big city and find the synagogue. 
And then he would attend on the Sabbath, he would attend the synagogue. And from the scriptures, which at that time was the Old Testament, he would explain to them who Jesus Christ was. And that was his normal way of doing it. The reason he would do it that way is when you go into a synagogue in a foreign city like that, you've got a common bond there. You've got a connection. Paul could appeal to his Jewishness and say, yes, I'm a Jew. I'm a, I was a Pharisee. And then you've also got the common scriptures. And so this is a way to connect with people. But apparently there was no synagogue in Philippi. Paul had traveled days in the city and couldn't find one. So what was he going to do? This is, this is a new challenge. This is something different. Well, what Luke tells us is that he and Timothy, or he and Silas headed, I think it was Silas, he and his companions headed to the river. They went to a place that they, they presumed, they supposed would be a place of prayer. And so they, they go into this place of prayer. Now, here's the thing with synagogues and places of prayer and stuff. None of it is in the Bible where it's required that this is how you do it. This is simply first century Jewish culture. For there to be a synagogue in a city, there had to be 10 Jewish men who would participate in that synagogue. Again, not scriptural, just tradition, but that was the way it was. So apparently there were not 10 Jewish men in the city of Philippi to form a synagogue. So what Paul does is he looks for a place of prayer and he knows where it'll be. It's down by the river. Why the river? That, again, this is cultural. It's not scriptural, but it's cultural. The theory is it might have to do with the Babylonian exile. When Daniel was in exile, he received visions twice by the river. When Ezekiel, at the beginning of Ezekiel, he is by the, the, uh, the channel Kebar, and he receives this overwhelming vision of God's glory with wheels and wheels and eyes and all kinds of weird creatures and stuff. So maybe that's what's going on. In, in uh, Psalm 137, it begins, by the rivers of Babylon, we wept. So it could be that they just said, well, you know, God met our ancestors by rivers. So that's where we'll go. If we don't have a synagogue, we'll go there and pray. So they go down to the place where they presume would be a place of prayer. And what they find, Luke tells us, is a gathering of women. So there, were no there weren't 10 men, Jew faithful Jewish men in the city, but these women had gathered to pray. And so, Luke, or, uh, so Paul and his companions join in. They come in, they sit down, and they start talking with the women. Now, I, I can imagine what it would be like to sit and talk with Paul. Um, it would take about 30 milliseconds for him to start telling you about Jesus. Hi, Paul, how's the weather? Oh, weather's great. Hey, you know who made the weather? Let me tell you about this. The weather coming is going to be horrible, and you need to escape the, you know, you just, you can't imagine him sitting and doing idle chit-chat for 35 minutes. Um, so he goes there, and he begins to talk with these, these women, and what Luke tells us in Acts is that as they're talking, God opened the heart of one of these women to understand, to receive what he was saying. And so what it is, this is the first convert in Europe, if you think about it. This is the first convert we know in Europe. And it's one of these women by the sea. And her name is, Lit or the, the river, and her name is Lydia. There's some really fascinating things about Lydia. One of the first things is, Luke tells us, Lydia was not from Philippi. She was from Thyatira. So there you go. Isn't that wonderful? What a fascinating fact. What is, why, why would he drop that detail in there? because guess where Thyatira was? In Asia. So Paul was not allowed to go into Asia. Instead, God took him beyond that and met an Asian woman there. So first of all, she's, she's from Asia. Second of all, it says that she was a dealer in purple. 
Now today you can get any color you want with a press of a button, you know, go to Home Depot and they can mix whatever color in their machines, you know, for paint or whatever. You can get it easily. Back in the first century, they didn't have all those chemicals to whip up new, new uh, colors. You had to find something in nature to create that color. And so purple was, I see people wearing purple. I'm like, this is perfect. <laughs> purple was a sign of royalty. It was for the rich because the only way to get purple was there was one sea creature that the secretions were purple and they could use that as a dye. So imagine Lydia somehow breaks into this purple market and, and is able to make money. This was a lucrative market for her. She was probably a well-off woman. And so God opens her heart to hear the gospel. And so she says, she, she um, begs the, the missionaries that she's met, please come and stay at my house. So don't think of a small little, you know, boxy thing. She probably had a larger home if she's inviting these people to come in and stay. And so now what you see is not just the first convert in Europe, you see the first church. Her home is now this base in this place, because what it says is that all of her household heard the gospel and believed as well. So now we have the first church in, in Europe, and it's in Philippi. So that, that was Lydia, and she's, she's going to be kind of important in that church, I would imagine, because it's her house. So what happens next is Paul continues to evangelize the city. He's going around and he's preaching. And this girl keeps following him and yelling, these men are servants of the most high God who will proclaim the way of salvation. Not a bad thing. You know, that's all right. But as they're going down to the place of prayer to preach again, it, it, what, what Luke tells us is Paul was greatly exasperated. He was really frustrated by this. This girl chasing him around, yelling at the top of her lungs was driving him nuts. What it was, she had a spirit of divination. The word in Greek is actually python. She had a python. And python was a goddess of divination. So there's this evil spirit has possessed her. And the only thing it's allowed to do is announce who they are. Um, can't oppose them or anything. So Paul gets exasperated. He's had enough. And he turns around and he says, come out of her and he exercises the demon. Now, you would think this would be a wonderful thing that people would celebrate. Isn't that wonderful? Well, she was a slave. She was owned by somebody else. And these people who owned her made money from her spirit of divination. And so they get mad because you've just ruined our business. I set a human being free from an evil spirit, and you're mad about money? Well, they weren't happy about this at all. So they grab um, Paul and Silas, and they drag him in before the magistrates. Now, don't forget, this is a Roman city. So this is Roman law. They drag him in before the magistrates who are going to hear the case and they accuse them. These men have ruined all our stuff. We're not going to make any more money because they did this thing. Isn't it amazing that they never go, wait a minute, they did what? They cast a demon out? Wait, I want to hear more about this. It never occurs to them. Instead, their answer is, well, beat them and throw them in jail. So that's what happens is they're beaten, they're thrown into jail. What we're told is while they're in jail, it's midnight, darkest hour. Remember, they don't have electric lights. It's not like they're going to flip switches on. They're sitting in the middle of this jail, and it says that Paul and Cyrus, Silas were singing hymns and praying. And what occurs is the most unusual earthquake you will ever hear of. The, the ground begins to shake, and the doors fly open. You could see that happen. It would jostle the doors, but this earthquake was so weird that the bonds, the, the chains they were wearing fell off. Imagine being in a prison with your handcuffs on and an earthquake happens and the handcuffs come off. 
It just doesn't happen. This was something supernatural, something out of the ordinary. And so all the doors fly open. The jailer who is in charge, this is his business. This is what he is charged to do is you keep these people in jail. Uh, usually the house of the jailer was close to the prison so that he could keep an eye on them. In the middle of the night, this earthquake has waked him. He runs in and he sees all the doors open. And his assumption is, oh my gosh, all the prisoners have fled. I am toast. So he gets ready to kill himself. He's going to thrust himself through with a sword, apparently. And Paul somehow knows this and yells out from the inside, don't do it. We're in here. We're still here. And listen to what, um, how Paul describes it. Paul cried out, or Luke describes it. Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before, before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What a question to ask them. What must I do to be saved? Saved from the magistrates who may take my life for letting you out of prison? No, that can't be what he was afraid of. They're still in prison. He still got them in custody. So there must have been more going on here because he asked, what shall I do to be saved? They, he, he must have heard Paul and them preach before. And so that question is loaded. And here's how Paul answers. And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to the, all those who were in his house. And so here we have another conversion, this household conversion. They were all baptized. We have a second church in Philippi from a jailer. Now, what comes next is a little, I, I just, it's so Paul, it's a very cheeky picture of who Paul is. So the next morning, um, the magistrates send the police to the jail to tell Paul, you may leave now. So isn't that magnanimous of them? Uh, we figure a beating and one night in jail is probably enough for you, now, now go. So the police come and they say, you may leave. And Paul says, no, 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 time out. I'm a Roman citizen. You don't get to beat me, throw me in jail without a hearing and then just ask me to go away. If they want me to leave, they can come here and ask themselves. So the police go back and now the magistrates are terrified. They're Roman citizens under Roman law. You don't beat a Roman citizen without a trial. Not everybody got to be a citizen. It was, having the citizenship in Rome had great privileges. And one of them was you can't do that. And so these guys are now terrified. What have we done? We were in such a rush to get to deal justice out and so they come down themselves and it says they apologize. We are so sorry for beating you. And would you kindly please come out of the prison and, and we would like to escort you out of the town because it would, be a, it would be a great favor to us if you would just leave. And so Paul, it, what's funny is this is the other cheeky uh, bit of Paul is it says, so they went out of the prison and they left the city. Nope, they went out of the prison and they visited Lydia. We're going home, <laughs> we'll leave when we're ready. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they departed. So Paul is like, I'm not in any big hurry. You guys owe me. You beat me, and now I'm, I'm leaving. So what happens next is Paul travels around some more of Macedonia. He goes to Achaia, which is uh, where Corinth is, and he continues to evangelize. He goes to Athens. He goes to numerous places. But eventually, word reaches him that um, something's going on in Jerusalem. It could be that the prophet Agabus, who had predicted that there would be a famine in the days of Claudia, uh, it could be that he, he was worried about that famine striking Judea. 
So he goes back through the, the churches that he's visited in, in Macedonia and Achaia, and he asks for them to donate money so that he can take it to Jerusalem for the saints there. So maybe the famine had already started by this point. So what happens then is Paul takes up this offering and he travels back to Jerusalem. And when he gets to Jerusalem, he's in the temple and a false accusation is made against him that he brought Greeks into the temple. That's probably not a, uh, an off-base thought because they saw him with Greeks. They know that he's been traveling around Greece and, and the, uh, the pagan world and hanging out with those dirty Gentiles. And so they, they assume that he's done that. He hasn't. He wouldn't violate that. that. That's part of the law. He wouldn't do that. So he's arrested um, because there's a riot breaks out. And when the, the Roman centurion finds out that he's a Roman citizen and they can't get a square answer out of the Jews, why, is, why are you guys trying to kill him? He eventually sends him under extremely heavy guard late at night to Caesarea. Caesarea was north. It was the, the zone, the province that would be in charge of all of Palestine and all of that. So he sends him there. And Paul is under house arrest in Caesarea for two years, um, preaching the gospel. Uh, we get a couple of glimpses of it, uh, preaching it to, um, to Felix and then to Festus, who replaced him. And eventually, Paul is under house arrest, and he makes an appeal to Caesar. Again, his Roman citizenship means that he can do this. He appealed to the Supreme Court. There is no one who is going to overrule Caesar. When Caesar makes that final decision, that's it. Now, as we go through the book of Philippians, we'll see what he means by his appeal to Caesar. He kind of fleshes that out for him. But what that means now is he's under arrest, and he is shipped off to Rome. Long story, a lot of things happening there. But when he gets to Rome, he's under house arrest in Rome. And when you're in house arrest in the Roman world, they don't provide you food and, and, and wash your sheets and, and all of that kind of stuff. They, they lock you up, and unless somebody's going to bring you anything, you rot and die. So Paul is, is locked up now in Rome and in need. And so what comes next is the Philippians hear about Paul's uh, arrest in Rome. This is around 60, 62 AD. They hear about his arrest, and they're concerned about him. So they gather up money, and they give it to a man named Epaphrodites, and they send him off. Go help Paul. Well, as somewhere along the line, Epaphrodites gets sick. And not just sick, Paul says he is sick to the point of death. He could potentially die. And the, the word gets back to the Philippians, and they're concerned about him. And so Paul, when Epaphrodites has, has shown up and has recovered, Paul is overwhelmed by their generosity. You've given me such a great gift. Epaphrodites is back. Let me send word back to you and, and make sure that you understand everything is okay. So that's kind of the story of the, the, the church at Philippi and its relationship to Paul. So why do I tell you about this? Why do I explain that to you? Because I want you to see the relationship between Paul and the church at Philippi. It's deeply personal. He started that church. He, he evangelized there. He has great relationships with those people. In Sunday school, we're looking at the book of Galatians. And it takes a while before Paul gets to the point where he says, brothers, he is really mad at them. He is angry with them. He's, he, he loves them. He's concerned for them, but he's very angry with them. When we look at the book of Philippians, we don't get that anger. All we get is Paul's overwhelming love, his great affection for them. And this is the point where I think the Christian doctrine of inspiration gets really mind-blowing. Because what Paul did is Paul picked up a pen and he wrote to his friends in Philippi. 
He wrote from a genuine position of love. He actually deeply loved these people. And so he writes a letter, exactly what he wanted to say to them, based on his experience, his reality. It's not something that's off in left field. This is based in his reality, his experience with these Philippians, what they've done for him. And so Paul's letter to the Philippians is this personal love letter between a missionary and the churches he started. But that's not the end of the doctrine of Christian inspiration. Inspiration says every single word in this epistle, every single word is exactly the word God wanted to use. And he didn't do it by overruling Paul and saying, you know, check out for a minute and I'll move your hand. It was exactly what Paul felt, exactly what Paul wanted to say, and exactly how God wanted it said. It's not like God said, hey, you know, Paul, that's a pretty good letter. I'll call that inspired and we'll, we'll use it. He, he caused it. The prophets were carried along by the spirit of God. And so that's, that's inspiration. So when we look at this letter, we can look at it and say, this is Paul's letter to the Philippians, a personal connection between two people. But we can also look at it and say, this is God's letter to us through Paul's words written to us. So it's not stranded off in the first century about you know, people that, that no longer exist in the church that's long gone by a man who died 2000 years ago. This is timeless because God inspired it. So it's for us as well. I, I just love the subtlety of the doctrine of inspiration. It's, it's so beautiful how God accomplishes exactly what he wanted to accomplish and he doesn't eclipse people doing it. It's, it's wonderful. So what then is the book of Philippians about? What does it say for us? Well, one of the things, if you've been around Christianity for a while, you've probably heard it's the book of joy, the epistle of joy. And that's true. The word joy shows up over and over and over again in this epistle. But joy is the fruit, not the, the, the root. Hey, that rhymed. It's, it's the fruit of what's going on. So uh, the other thing that comes out in this is this idea of unity. And again, unity is there. It is part of what's going on, but unity is more of the fruit. So what I think the, the central point of the gospel or the, uh, the, the epistle is, comes from verse 27 in chapter one. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So he, he's, he's, there's a lot packed into that. Let your life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what is the gospel of Christ? Well, we learned from the book of Romans, the gospel of Christ is you are horribly sinful. You are tragically broken. You are sinful in, in all of your faculties and you cannot save yourself. But the good news is Jesus Christ came so that you could be justified by faith. And in Romans, we learn justified means not just declared innocent. It's at least that justified is to be declared righteous. And so the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus came and he died and he rose again for our justification so that we could be credited with his righteousness. So that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not, he, he doesn't say so that you could be worthy of salvation. So that you could work real hard and be good enough and God would go, why should I let you in heaven? Oh, because you did so many wonderful things. I, I can't turn you away. You're so wonderful. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we have to keep the gospel central. What does it to mean to be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, the word worthy, um, it, it's kind of a cool word. It had originally to do with moving the weights on a scale to balance the scale. 
so it has this idea of, of equity or, or fitting or appropriate. So kind of get that, that sense of the scales being leveled. So when it says worthy of the gospel, it's not a bad translation, but what it's, it's not saying that you do enough good things so that you can have the gospel. That's not the gospel. What it's saying is, this is the truth. Jesus Christ died for you. You are justified because of faith in him. So when you go to heaven and God says, why should I let you in my heaven? It's not, I did a lot of good things. Look at all my niceness. You, you look around him, you point at Jesus standing by the throne and you go, I'm with him. That's the only reason you should let me in heaven is I'm with him. If that's not good enough, I got nothing else. So to live worthy of that is not to do enough good works to rank that. You can't. Jesus did the good works for you. To live worthy of it is to live in conformity to that, to live in a way that, that echoes that, that looks like that. Because don't forget, Jesus, God didn't just send Jesus and say, believe this. And, and you go, oh, it's like getting a train ticket. I get a train ticket. I, I loiter around the train station waiting for the train to leave. So I, I believe in Jesus, and now I'm just waiting to die so I can scoot off to heaven. You could do that at a train station. They put chairs out so you can sit and wait, or at an airport. Ask me about airport. We got some experience with that recently, <laughs> sitting in chairs and waiting. That's not living worthy of the gospel. Living worthy of the gospel is God said, not only am I giving you access to heaven, I'm giving you a new heart. I have written my law on your heart. I have sealed you with the Holy Spirit. My spirit now indwells you. And so to live worthy of the gospel is to say, this is what's true of me. Jesus Christ died for my sins. And then I have been given a new heart. I have been made new in him. I have been regenerated so that I could believe that, that truth. That changes your life. So that's what it means to live worthy of that, is to say, I, I, I recognize what God has done for me, and I'm going to live according to that truth. And then notice he says, live lives, a manner of life that is in conformity to the gospel. It was only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. A manner of life is not what you do on Sunday morning for a couple hours. It's at least that. A manner of life is what does the pattern of your life look like? Overall, what does it look like for you? How are you living? Are you living in conformity to this truth that Jesus has died for you, that the Holy Spirit indwells you, that your law is written on your heart? all of your life, Sunday morning through Sunday morning, all of it is there. And so that's what I think the gospel or the gospel, it, you know, I might want to call it the gospel of Philippians. The, the epistle of Philippians is all about is Paul is calling us to certain things in this. But what he's calling us to is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus. And that's, that's how it looks. So why are we doing Philippians after we did Daniel? Well, funny story. I had been working for, I think it was a month and a half going, what am I going to do next? We're coming to the end of Daniel and praying and fussing and reading. And, and uh, I was talking with a wise, very wise friend of mine who you will want to thank personally, probably at some point. I said, well, you know, I've been going through Daniel and there's a lot of eschatology. So maybe we should do a New Testament take on eschatology like Thessalonians or maybe even Revelation. And my very wise friend said, maybe your folks need a break from eschatology. <laughs> like, yeah, maybe I do too. So I kind of backed off. But last Sunday, I'm going, Lord, I'm going to finish the book of Daniel this morning. I need an answer. <laughs> I don't know what to do next. And out of nowhere popped into my head the book of Philippians. So, oh, yeah, okay. 
Now, I'm not claiming inspiration or, you know, an angel appeared or anything. It was just odd that I had never thought of Philippians. So when I read through it, I sat down and read it beginning to end and was just electrified. I'm like, this is going to be great. The book of Daniel was about living faithfully in a foreign culture, right? Dan we saw Daniel, we saw Hananiah, Azariah, and, and uh, Michelle uh, living faithfully in a foreign culture. But the thing with Daniel is most of that book was Daniel by himself. There's nobody else with him. Almost all of the book, it's just him. So it's really a challenge to live as a faithful believer in a foreign culture, especially isolated like that. So when we come to the book of Philippians, what Paul is going to show us is how to live as a faithful group of believers together. It's the church at Philippi. And so he's calling us to live lives in accordance with the gospel. We're going to live this life together, faithful to Jesus Christ in this foreign culture. So it's kind of like the next step in that. So that's, that's what I think the book of Philippians is about. And so I'm really looking forward to going through it. Um, there is so much great stuff in the book of Philippians. Let me see if I can find my note here. Um, there it is. Um, the book of Philippians is very short. Um, it is only four chapters, 104 verses. If you took the text of it and copied it into a Word document and set it to Times New Roman 12-point font, it is about on an eight and a half sheet of paper. It's about two and just over two pages long. So it's pretty short. Um, 2,147 words in the English Standard Version. You can read it in a couple of minutes. Do that. Um, Dan stepped on my toes because he said, read Romans 4 this week. And I'm like, okay, so read Romans 4 and then turn around and read the book of Philippians beginning to end twice. I'm asking you to read it twice this week. What you will find in this amazingly short, beautiful epistle is some of the most memorable verses in the Bible. You've heard these. Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.21, for, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians 3, 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Philippians 4, 6, do not be anxious for anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. Philippians 4, 13, one of the most abused poorly abused by verses in the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is not a promise to do more push-ups than you thought you could. We'll see it in context, but that's what you get in two pages. These wonderful verses, these wonderful promises. So read through that. Um, now let's take a look at the beginning of the book. I had um, Chris read verses one through 11. We're only gonna do verses one and two this morning. Um, we had a long introduction, so let's just look at Paul's introduction. So verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When you read through the Bible and you read through the epistles, you can look at those introductions and zoom right past them. I, I confess I do it myself. Um, they seem almost formulaic because Paul starts all of his epistles with you know, pretty much the same thing. 
Well, there is a formula to how Greeks wrote letters. It was from so-and-so to so-and-so greetings. Um, it's kind of like our letters. When you write a letter, you write the, usually put the date at the top so they know when it was written, dear so-and-so, dear Susan, that's a very personal one. You're talking to somebody you know. Dear Mrs. Smith, that's a little bit more formal. To whom it may concern, that's very, or very formal. You don't know who this person is. Um, after that, it gets a little loosey-goosey. And then we end it with a conclusion, sincerely in your name or something along those lines. Well, the Greeks did a similar thing. They had a pattern for writing letters. Paul blows that pattern away because he follows it until he gets to greetings and then he changes the formula. So when you see it over and over again, you kind of can tune it out. But there's some things about the Philippian introduction that really stand out. And if you slow down long enough to pay attention, they kind of are gonna inform you about some things. So it begins with Paul and Timothy. It's not just Paul. The only other epistles that Paul writes where he names another person in the introduction are the Thessalonian ones. All the other ones, it's Paul. So the first thing Paul is showing us is that sense of unity. It's not just me writing, it is Timothy and I. And Timothy was with him when he evangelized in Philippi. So he, he's, he's writing from this common group kind of idea. We're in this together, Paul and Timothy, to the saints at Philippi, all of us. The next thing that he says is, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. And one of the things that commentators got all up in arms about is he doesn't appeal to his apostolic authority. He, he doesn't come in and say, I want to explain to you the authority by, with, by which I'm writing. He, he instead calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus. Now, real quick comment on the word servant. In Greek, it's actually the word slave. But the translators decided to use servant or you'll see bond servant. And in some cases, they do use the word slave. The reason that they did that is not because they're shy of the word slave, but because in our Western culture, the way we think about slavery, especially in this country, is the barbaric practice we had for centuries. Slaves were considered less than human. Our constitution says they are two thirds of a person. They were not given any rights. They, were, they could be beaten to death for, for any reason. They were treated as, as property for a long time. So in our understanding, slavery is a barbaric institution. It's how we practiced it. In the Greek world, slavery was slightly less bad. It was still slavery, but there were only a few ways that you could become a slave. One of them was not, we pulled up to your coast, grabbed you through in a ship and sent you across the sea. One way that you could become a slave in the Roman world was if you were in debt to somebody. Let's say you just inherited a big field and you went, you know, I'm going to plant some barley there, but I don't have any. So I'll go to this farmer who's very successful and I'll borrow some, some barley grain and I'll plant it in my field and then I'll repay him. And then I'll take whatever's left over and, and sell it and eat it and use it for the next year. This is going to be great. And then the rains come and come and come and come and it wipes out your field. All your barley grain that you you've sowed is gone. You can't pay that guy back you owe him a ton of grain and there's no way to repay him. So your only option at that point me, might be to go to him and say, I'll be your slave. And Roman law had, had rules for how long you could hold a slave in this kind of a situation. Now, I don't mean it to sound like it's better than what we did because slaves were beaten and, and they were sometimes killed and they didn't have any rights. 
but there was a way out. It wasn't because of your ethnicity that you were a slave. And, and Rome didn't have human rights. They didn't consider humans equal, but um, there was a way out. So you would serve for a period of time and then you'd be released. And that's where we get the word in the Bible, freedmen. There were freed men. So that was one way. Another way that you could become a slave in the Roman world is by foolishly resisting Rome when they invaded. They didn't take that very well. When they decided they were going to invade someplace, they tended to just kind of come in and, you know, wipe everybody out. And so if you resisted, you could be taken as a slave and, and sold. And that would be a bad thing. So um, Rome's message there was just lay down your arms. It'll go much better for you. Or you could be born into slavery. Um, so again, it's not like it was this wonderful institution. It was still slavery, but it wasn't the way we practiced it. So we, we translate the words uh, instead of slave as servant. Now, I don't want you to think of servant as in Downton Abbey, with the servants being paid and living on the property and having relationships with the, the, uh, the land or the lady and the lord of the house. Um, it, it was, I am, in, I am owned by Jesus Christ. I am his servant, but not in that negative sense. So they're servants of Christ Jesus. This is the picture that Paul puts forward. Timothy and I are in this together. We are owned by Jesus Christ. And we're writing to you because we know you. We love you. And so that's the first part. Now, the next thing he says, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and the deacons. There, there's a lot packed into that little phrase, to the saints at Philippi. So remember last time we saw Philippi, there were two churches the Philippian jailers, and Lydia's homes. And that was it. Now he says to all the saints in Philippi. So apparently, it could still be those two, but apparently that's, that's a, a fuller sense. But then he does something he doesn't do in any of the other epistles. He says, with the overseers and deacons. So what you see is if you step back for a second, you look at this church, and what you find out is they have grown to the point where they can now have officers in their church. They're self-sustaining. They're on their own. They're doing good. Paul came in and witnessed to them and planted them. And one of the metrics that you measure to say, is this church a viable, is it a real church, is they have their own officers. They have their own leaders. And that's what he's telling us. And so when we look back at the church of Philippi, we see in their beginning, we're very small, but now they have grown. So what is an overseer and what is a deacon? Well, overseer, the word there is episkopos. It's where we get the English word episcopal or where we get the word bishop. We get a bishop out of episcopos by going through Latin to get there, but, you know, and then through Old English, and then it arrives. But what it is, is it's basically an overseer. So in some church traditions, a bishop is somebody who's in charge of multiple churches. So there'll be multiple churches with their own uh, pastors and, and leadership, and then there's a bishop who will be over all of them. And that's a very early tradition in the Christian, um, in the Christian way of doing things. Um, we don't do that in the free church, and we don't practice an Episcopal form of government. We believe in the, the autonomy of the local church. The reason for that is, why is it that we don't go with a bishop concept? Um, in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is heading toward Jerusalem, he stops in Ephesus on the beach, and he calls out um, the elders of the church. Elders is a different word. It is presbytos, presbyters. They're the elders. And they, he calls the elders and they come to him and he preaches a wonderful sermon to them. And at the end, he tells them in verse 28, be careful or pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you episcopos, 
to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the way I understand it, Episcopos and uh, Presbyter are interchangeable. They're the same thing, just different ways of approaching it. So, um, so when we see the word overseers there, you can think of elders. And the elders have charge of the flock to teach, to preach, to pray, to anoint the sick, uh, for those kinds of things. And then it mentions the deacons. And the deacons are those who take care of more temporal issues in the church. Acts chapter 6, there was a complaint rose because the Greek widows were not being fed the same way the Hebrew widows were. And so the, the apostle said, well, it's not right for us to stop praying and preaching. So appoint seven men to, to take that over. And so they, that was kind of the proto-deacon, if you will, the beginning of the diaconate is they're taking care of these temporal things. In our church, they do things like take care of the facility. They uh, administer the benevolence fund. So if you have a financial need and you're in trouble, you can come to the deacons and they can give you money to help you out. Um, they're doing those kinds of things. So the, the elders are doing one thing, the deacons are doing something else. And so he writes to this church and I just think it's wonderful how he paints this picture only a few years later of this church in Philippi is now on their own. They have overseers, multiples, and deacons. They have a church structure. And not only have they got the church structure, but apparently they have been taking up an offering because they send money to Paul. And not only do they send money to Paul, but they send one of their own. Epaphroditus brings it to them. So the, the church is, is viable. It's, it's standing on its own. Now, the next thing he says is the end of the standard greeting. Now, in Greek writing, this would be greetings, but Paul doesn't go with that. He, he, he modifies that to be more Christian way. He says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he, he, he says, grace to you. Grace is the word charis. It was a standard greeting that was, you know, you walk up to a Greek person and say, charis, uh, peace, or, you know, grace, buddy. Um, in Christian circles, what grace means is much more than that. Um, the standard kind of answer is, what is grace? Grace is God's unmerited favor. And it's not a bad definition. I think favor, though, is kind of a weak word for us now. Um, when you leave a tip for somebody, you leave a favor. Or you go to a party and they give you a little gift bag. That's party favors. So it's, it's a little too weak for us. The best answer I saw was Sinclair Ferguson and his little commentary on this said, grace is God's love for the unworthy, which I think is God's unmerited favor put in much better terms. So God's love for the unworthy. Remember, you are to be worthy of the gospel, but it's God's unmerited love, God's love that you didn't earn to be worthy of the gospel. So that's grace. He's wishing to the saints in Philippi, God's grace. May God pour out his abundant love on you over and over again. Grace to you. Then the other word that he uses is peace. And one of the thoughts on this is that the word, the word peace there is uh, Irenus, but it's probably a Greek translation for the idea, the Hebrew idea of shalom. And as a, as a little kid, I can remember my mom had a cross-stitch thing on the wall, and I didn't know what it was. It was kind of hip 1970s colors and, and weird shapes. And she said, oh, that's the Hebrew word shalom. And I can remember looking at it and trying to figure out how is that shalom? I don't know what that means. Uh, not enough letters. And when I just visited her a couple of weeks ago, I saw it. She still got it up. And I went, I can read that now. <laughs> she spelled it right. That's shalom. The Greek or the, the Hebrew concept of shalom is peace. And that's not a bad translation. That's kind of what it is. But the, the thought behind peace in a Hebrew mindset is not just absence of turmoil. 
Because you can, you can be in a war and find a, a little place to hide and have a moment of peace. When they say shalom, what they're saying is, may everything be as it should be. All things come together in a right way for you so that the product of that is peace, so that your life will have peace because everything is working as it should. It's a more holistic, a, a bigger concept than just personal peace for you. And so that's what Paul wishes them. This is probably Jews and Greeks together in the church. And so he uses the Greek term charis, grace, and then he uses the term that the Greek-speaking Jews would know for shalom. And so that's, that's the wish for them, is may God show his undeserved love on you. May he pour it out on you. And because of that, because of the, who Jesus Christ is, because you have been given the gospel, may everything work together for your good. And when we hear this, we remember that Paul's relationship with the church at Philippi, this is not perfunctory. It's not like he had copy and paste and threw it in there. This is coming from his heart. This is his deep desire, his love and his wish for the church at Philippi. And here's the good news, my friends. This is an inspired book of the Bible. This comes from God's word. This is God's word to you. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and Christ Jesus. What a great way to start a letter. I want to start writing letters that way. Grace and peace to you. And so that's where it's going to go. So as we work through the book of Philippians, we're going we're gonna to hopefully go a little bit slow on this because there is, like I said, there are so many great passages in here and, and it's probably going to take us to some, some time to dig through it. So even though it's short, I'm hoping it'll last a good long time um, because it's just so exciting to do that. It's, it's, it's so wonderful. So that's where we're going. That's, that's what we're going to learn from the book of, um, of Philippians. Uh, we're going to learn about unity. We're going to learn about humility. Um, servants of Jesus Christ. That's a humble attitude. We're going to learn about who Jesus Christ is. We're going to learn about how to live together as, as a common people of God. And I'm just looking forward to it. So this week, let me ask you, please, two times this week, do me a favor and read the book of Philippians beginning to end. It's short. I promise it won't take too much time. You can do it in the morning while you're sipping on your cup of coffee. You can do it in the evening before you go to bed. Whatever it is, just take the time to read through it. And, and I pray that it, you find it as electrifying as I did when I read through it, preparing for this. It, it's very good. And, and so please spend some time in the book of Philippians. And with that, let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for sending us your word. All scripture is inspired. All of it is breathed out by God, and it's all profitable, every part of it, for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness that we might live, have lives worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, would you grant that to us individually, every seat in this, this, this uh, room, Lord, every person occupying a seat in this room, would you grant them those things, the ability to live a life worthy of the gospel? And Lord, would you grant that to us as a community, as a church, cause us to live lives that are worthy of the gospel because of the grace and the peace that is ours in Christ Jesus. And we ask this in his name. Amen.